Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash science to get a free audiobook download when you sign up today. Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting December 12th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, are there aliens already living among us? We'll talk to renowned researcher and writer Paul Davies about that, plus we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Paul Davies is a theoretical physicist and cosmologist who has, in the last few years, worked on the problems of the origins of life and evolution. Born in England, he worked in Australia from 1990 to 2006 when he came to Arizona State University to establish an institute called Beyond, Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science. He has the cover story in the December issue of Scientific American called Are Aliens Among Us? To find out more, I called him at his office at Arizona State. Dr. Davies, great to talk to you today. Hi, Steve. This is a, f- a fascinating kind of thought experiment at this point. Actually, there, there's, it's more than a thought experiment, but let's talk about this idea of aliens among us. And by aliens, why, why don't we talk first about what we actually mean by aliens? I'm not referring to uh, UFOs, little green men, or anything of that sort. Uh, by alien life, I mean life as we don't know it. It doesn't necessarily even mean that it comes from beyond Earth, although it might. And in fact, it's increasingly increasingly fashionable to conjecture that life as we do know it may have originated somewhere else, for example, Mars, and come to Earth later. But you don't have to buy any of that to understand the basic idea, which is that if life has started more than once, then there's more than one form of life. And it's uh, possible, though a wild speculation, uh, that an alternative form of life might exist all around us, forming a sort of hidden biosphere. Yeah, you have this this wonderful phrase, shadow biosphere, in the article. And uh, let me just quote one line from the article that I thought was was really great. At first, this idea might seem preposterous. If alien organisms thrived right under our noses, or even in our noses, would right. not would not scientists have discovered them already? So it's even possible that that living on or inside of us are uh, microbes from a separate origin. That's right. So uh, the first thing to understand is that almost all life on Earth is microbial. We notice the elephants and the kangaroos and the big things, uh, but uh, when you take an inventory of all of the different uh, forms of life, uh, then overwhelmingly they are microbes. But now among those uh, microbes, uh, it's really only possible to differentiate by looking at their genome. So you have to sequence the genes to see how they differ. You can't tell just by looking. I mean, some of them are, of course, like rods, and some of them are like uh, little blobs, and so on. But uh, it's it's not like you can classify them by going to a zoo, and the zebra is, uh, you know, different from a crocodile. Um, And so... Uh, it's only when you get into this sort of uh, genetic study that uh, the possibility opens up uh, that there could be uh, microbial life, which we might have noticed. It would, people may have seen these things under microscopes, but this would be microbial life that would not be our life, that it would not share our biochemistry, would differ in some fundamental way, in a way that suggested it is uh, descended from uh, a different origin. And so this... This just raises the whole question about the origin of life, the 
ultimate genesis of life and whether it happened once or happened many times. Right, and that's a key idea of the article is that um, to just see what how natural an aspect of an environment the advent of life is, we we don't necessarily need to investigate the rest of the solar system or the rest of the galaxy. Yes, the origin of life is one of those great unsolved problems of science that people love to think about, and uh, it's uh, fascinating that uh, Charles Darwin uh, gave us uh, the theory of evolution uh, nearly 150 years ago, but he pointedly would not be drawn on how life got started in the first place. He, he in fact, uh, quipped that one might as well speculate about the origin of matter. Uh, so he just assumed that, uh, you know, by some sort of magic life uh, existed and then studied how it evolved. Um, but the, the question about how does life form from non-life, of course, has, has been a preoccupation of scientists ever since. And we've made a little bit of progress on it, but not a great deal. It's still a great mystery. And it tends to divide into the, the when, the where, and the how. As far as life on Earth is concerned, we've got a pretty good idea that it was well established by about three and a half billion years ago. Uh, the where part uh, people argue about, um, my own point of view is that if life started on Earth, I favor a deep, hot location, maybe in the Earth's crust or on the uh, seabed, uh, or possibly it came from Mars. Maybe it formed on Mars and came here later. That's another conjecture. But the how part is the one that really nobody can agree on. Uh, there are biologists who have said, that life is so complex, even the simplest living thing is so stupendously complex, that if it formed by the chance shuffling of molecules, this surely had happened only once in the observable universe. It would be like a freak, uh, an aberration, and uh, this is it. We see it around us, and that's all there is, and we couldn't expect there to be life anywhere else. And then at the other extreme, there are biologists, for example, like Christian de Duve, Nobel Prize winner, who says that Life is a cosmic imperative, is the way he expresses it, that it's written into the fabric of the universe in some deep way, and it will emerge wherever there are Earth-like conditions. And so we've got this vast spectrum between life is just a stupendous fluke, happened only once, to uh, the other end, the astrobiologist end, that it's going to pop up all over the universe. Well, how do we test that? How how can we uh, answer the question, is life expected? Is it something that would arise readily in Earth-like conditions, or is it exceedingly rare, maybe unique, maybe just uh, confined to Earth? Um, and now the obvious way, the direct way, is to go somewhere else, go to another Earth-like planet, see if life has started from scratch there. Uh, the problem is that the most hopeful planet within the solar system, which is Mars, uh, is already compromised. And the reason for that is that Mars and Earth have, throughout their entire lifetime have been trading rocks uh, in very large quantities. Uh, and I think it's uh, pretty well known now that there are Martian meteorites in uh, collections here on Earth. Uh, the, uh, there was the famous one that Bill Clinton told the world about when he stood on the White House lawn and said that NASA had evidence uh, for life on Mars from marks in a meteorite found in Antarctica that comes from Mars. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that turned out to be wrong, but nevertheless uh, we now know that Mars rocks come here and Earth rocks go to Mars. And because uh, rocks are a very good place for microbes to live, we know that just looking inside Earth rocks, they're teeming with microbes, uh, that this is a great way they can be conveyed from one planet to another. 
So these rocks get blasted off uh, by asteroid and comet impacts and uh, fly around the solar system, and they uh, can cocoon microorganisms that could be protected from the rigors of outer space and eventually, uh, if they're lucky, land on another planet. So uh, Earth and Mars look like they have cross-contaminated each other throughout their history. But going to Mars and finding life there probably isn't going to settle the issue. You have to go, uh, well, I think probably outside of the solar system altogether, uh, to an Earth-like planet in another star system before there's the negligible risk of cross-contamination. And we're not going to do that anytime soon. So it seemed to me that meanwhile, uh, all we had to do was to ask the question, well, if life really does form readily in Earth-like conditions, the most Earth-like planet we know is Earth itself, shouldn't it have happened many times over right here on our home planet? And if it did, if life started uh, more than once on Earth, what would we look for? What sort of evidence might there be of multiple origins of life? So that's the starting point of this uh, series of conjectures. A research program, I like to see it. Let's talk about the the problems inherent in looking for this uh, needle in a stack of needles. Uh, so you, you talk about uh, going to extreme environments or extreme conditions to try to find something that might stand out. Right. Now, uh, about a year ago, we held a workshop at the Beyond Center here at Arizona State University where I brought together uh, a number of people working on uh, searching for organisms in extreme environments and uh, searching for novel forms of life elsewhere in the universe. And we put our heads together to try to decide what was the best way we could identify alien microbes if they are indeed here on Earth. And uh, we figured that there were really two uh, quite distinct uh, set of circumstances. One is if the alien microbes were ecologically separated from known life. That is to say uh, that if life has started many times over, perhaps some life likes it hot, some life likes it cold, uh, and so on, and that uh, we could look for extreme environments on Earth which are beyond the limits of known life, uh, known life of course, can exist in a wide variety of circumstances, very harsh conditions, uh, such as extreme cold or heat, extreme acidity or uh, saline conditions. Um, we still find living organisms there. And when you sequence their genomes, you find that they are life as we know it. Yet there must be some outer limits uh, uh, to what known life can endure. For example, as the temperature is raised, uh, you find organisms living in deep uh, ocean volcanic trenches uh, that are uh, quite happy to metabolize at up to about 120 degrees centigrade, uh, maybe even a little above that. But surely there's going to be some limit, let's pick a figure, say 135 centigrade, beyond which known life could not survive. Now, if uh, we found something living at 180 centigrade, then that might well be life as we don't know it. And so we could look in these extreme environments to see if... Uh, Known life peters out, and then there's a gap, and then we see uh, some other form of life uh, re resuming. Uh, and we could apply that for any of the parameters, for the dryness and uh, radiation exposure and pressure and so on. Uh, and so we're then looking for um, niche ecologies that could be occupied by some exotic, uh, weird, alien form of life. So that's, that's scenario number one, ecologically separated. In many ways, more fascinating but harder to get to grips with is ecologically integrated. That is to say that we're dealing with 
uh, a different form of life, but it's perfectly happy to um, co-inhabit the planet with us in a similar type of environment. And so uh, we could imagine that there might be alien microbes all around us, as I think you you uh, quoted earlier, under our noses or even in our noses. Um, and, and this is a case of peaceful coexistence. People will often say, oh, well, if there was some other form of life on Earth, uh, our form and, and that form would be sort of fighting for resources. They'd be in competition and one would eliminate the other. But I've never been persuaded by that argument. We know, even just within life uh, as we do know it, uh, that the um, archaea and the bacteria, these are both microbial realms. Uh, they're very different from each other, uh, but they don't eliminate each other. They peacefully coexist. Uh, so it seems that we could have microbial life that uh, needs some of the same sorts of things, you know, for example, carbon and liquid water, uh, but there wouldn't be any uh, direct competition so that the one eliminates the other. They would uh, would compete alongside each other. Uh, but they wouldn't swap genes, for example, uh, because they'd be sufficiently different. They couldn't, you know, talk to each other biochemically. Uh, they would just occupy similar habitats. Um, and then the question is, how can we tell? If you just uh, take a, a sample of microorganisms from you know, soil or, or somewhere else and just look at them under a microscope, well, of course, there's a huge number and a huge variety. It's going to be very hard to tell that way. And so we'd be looking for some uh, exotic uh, type of uh, biochemistry. And then the question is what? And, and there's a sliding scale of things that could be different. Um, for example, we might imagine that Another form of life would be based, as is ours, on nucleic acids and proteins. But they may be different proteins. They may be made up with uh, different amino acids from the ones that we use. Uh, and so one possibility is to simply look for organisms that have got a different complement of amino acids uh, as, as a sign that they might be doing things differently. And then one can push that uh, scale of difference uh, to the point where we might consider one of the essential elephant elements of life as we know it, uh, which is we have carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, phosphorus, uh, oxygen, and uh, sulfur. We take those elements and consider what would happen if one of them was replaced by something else. And one in particular that we discussed at length at the workshop and which I've uh, been developing in a research project here at ASU uh, is that maybe phosphorus, which is a rather rare element on Earth, um, might in a different form of life be replaced by something else. And the, the something else we're looking at is arsenic. Uh, arsenic is a poison uh, precisely because it mimics phosphorus chemically in many ways, uh, but then it has differences too. And so is it possible that there is some sort of arsenic life out there in the environment? Uh, and so we've uh, been thinking about ways in which we might identify arsenic life, where it might be living, what it might be doing. Let me ask you a nuts and bolts question. Uh, how does a graduate student or a young faculty member who has to apply for funding convince the parties they have to convince to do this kind of research? Well, it's always the case with cutting-edge research, uh, particularly if we're pushing the conceptual boundaries, that it's hard to get funding from mainstream agencies. The good news, however, is that you don't need very much funding uh, to look for the sort of thing that we've been discussing. So let's take, for example, uh, are there organisms that use arsenic instead of uh, phosphorus? Uh, well, you might think 
let's go to somewhere which is rich in arsenic and poor in phosphorus. And one place we've identified are, are precisely the uh, ocean vents uh, on the, the seafloor where you have these volcanic um, uh, vents that uh, discharge fluids uh, into the surrounding seawater and form the so-called black smokers, which have been very famous from all sorts of movies that have been made about the exotic ecosystems around there. Well, we think that some of these will be uh, rich in arsenic and they would be a great uh, place to sample microorganisms. Now, these uh, systems are being studied anyway. Uh, people are, are sending uh, submarines there. They're extracting uh, bits of these uh, black smokers. They're uh, studying the microorganisms there. So um, it's not like you've got to have a, a special expedition. Uh, and it's certainly, uh, even if you did, certainly a lot cheaper than going to Mars uh, to look for exotic life. And so um, uh, really it's a matter of uh, uh, forming the necessary collaborations uh, for people who are studying life in exotic environments, of making them available uh, to researchers who might be interested in in uh, seeing if there is something different. Now, you see, uh, the, the problem that happens, if you talk to microbiologists about um, have they ever come across microorganisms that just don't seem to fit the bill as far as their customized techniques are concerned? Well, of course, all the time. They say, well, we couldn't culture these organisms or we couldn't sequence them and, uh, uh, you know, they're just difficult to work with. And you ask, well, what, what do you do with them? And they say, well, we throw them away and we go on to something else. Right. Uh, they, uh, and so, you know, the techniques which are developed to study life as we know it uh, are all very refined, but they only work with life as we know it. So we're looking, in a sense, of the, of the stuff that gets discarded. Uh, there may well be microorganisms uh, in uh, labs around the world, in collections, right. that are simply organisms that are just intractable. Uh, they won't behave themselves when being studied by conventional techniques. Let's look again at those. Uh, let's see if there's anything that is... Um, uh, that, that isn't responding to uh, the, the sort of customized uh, biochemical uh, procedures and uh, look more carefully with not very expensive equipment to see if there's something uh, different inside them. The ultimate junk DNA. Yes, yes, that's right. You see, so it could, be, it could if these are DNA-based organisms, then we would find that uh, the usual triplet code isn't going to work for them and the sequences that uh, uh, code for genes uh, of the sort that we know uh, are simply not going to be coding. Now, we have also the possibility of organisms that would use a different, uh, not just different genetic code, but different numbers. Instead of being a triplet code, maybe a doublet code, uh, which would be simpler. And again, these wouldn't show up with the sort of techniques people are using at the moment. But if one went specifically looking for a doublet code, well then, uh, it may well be that we'd find such a thing. What do you think the the psychological effect would be uh, from finding something that was verifiably from a different origin? I think it's really, really profound. Um, if you ask people, uh, sh should we be going into space and what are we doing there and you know, what, what is the purpose of NASA and so on, the general public overwhelmingly thinks that the, uh, the, the reason for going into space is to seek out other forms of life. But uh, what they really are fascinated by is to answer the question, are we alone in the universe? And uh, you know, much as it's uh, great to see the pictures of the giant planets and so on, I think it's the, the prospect that we're not alone and that there's other life out there somewhere that really fascinates people. And the issue here is a very profound one because uh, if it turns out 
that life uh, is just a freak phenomenon. It's, it's something that has just happened against all the odds in one little corner of the universe, and this is it. Uh, the philosophical implications of that are pretty profound. Uh, we're alone in the universe. We better take better care of our planet, of course. Um, but it means that, in some sense, you know, life is just a, a quirky phenomenon, and it's not really built into the great uh, cosmic scheme of things. But if, conversely, it turns out that the universe is intrinsically biofriendly, if life emerges all over the place as part of the natural outworkings of, of an inherently biofriendly universe, well, um, that's the universe that I prefer by temperament. It makes me feel at home in the universe. Uh, I think, well, we're not just uh, just freaks. Uh, we, we, in a sense, belong here. Um, that's a very, very profound thing. Now, if we find that life has started many times over on Earth, well, then we know it, it will have formed all around the universe because if, um, if it is a fantastically improbable thing, the chances of it happening twice here and nowhere else are infinitesimal. So we know uh, that if life has formed many times on Earth, or even just more than once, if it's just formed twice on Earth, then we know that the that nature really is intrinsically biofriendly. We know that life is what Christian Zadouf calls a cosmic imperative, and we expect to find it everywhere. Uh, we won't be alone in the universe, uh, and that completely changes the way we see ourselves and our relationship to, to nature. So it is, it is uh, the consequences, I think, are uh, very sweeping. This is not just a um, a, a technical scientific thing. It's something that has very, very deep philosophical ramifications. It's great stuff. Are Aliens Among Us is the title of the article. It's in the December Scientific American by Paul Davies. Paul, really fun to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thank you for your interest. Paul Davies' article is available free at our website. Just go to siam.com slash siammag. For more on Davies' Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science, go to Beyond dot asu dot edu by the way the deputy director of the center is geologist kip hodges who appeared on the july 26 2006 episode of this podcast still available at our website paul davies latest book is called cosmic jackpot why our universe is just right for life now it's time to play totally bogus here are four science stories only three are true see if you know which story is totally bogus story one city dwellers are less likely to go skiing when their own backyards are bare even if ski resorts have lots of snow story two gila monster saliva is the source of a promising new diabetes drug story three a survey found that the vast majority of parents of obese kids between six and eleven were quote very concerned end quote about their kids weight and story four research just published that looked at the experience of time passing involved volunteers plummeting ten stories into a net Time's up. Story one is true. New England urbanites go skiing less if they don't see snow at home, even if the snow at resorts is deep. That's according to research out of the University of New Hampshire that was published in the December issue of the International Journal of Climatology. The researchers studied two New Hampshire resorts and found that attendance more strongly depended on whether it snowed in Boston. Story two is true. A drug derived from Gila monster saliva increases the amount of insulin the pancreas secretes. For more, check out the special report Managing Diabetes in the new Scientific American Body magazine at siam.com slash siambody. 
And story four is true. The study of time perception did involve dropping people into a net from 100 feet. The researchers wanted to find out if time really does seem to slow down in a crisis. And the study subjects did estimate their own time spent dropping as taking a third longer than their estimates of other people doing the same thing. But the falling subjects were not able to distinguish numbers moving fast on a meter any better while time seemed to be slowing down to them as they were falling. So forget about dodging slow-moving bullets there, Neo. All of which means that story three about how most parents of obese kids are worried about their weight is... Totally bogus, because the University of Michigan survey of parents of obese kids 6 to 11 years old found that only 7% of parents with kids in that age group who were obese were very concerned about their children's weight. More than 40% thought that the kids were at, quote, about the right weight, end quote. Some important notes. Last week on the podcast, we talked about honey replacing cough suppressant for kids. Except you should not use honey with kids under 12 months of age because infants that young are at risk for a rare form of botulism from honey. The bacteria involved are typically harmless to older kids and to adults, according to mayoclinic.com. Thanks to listener Joshua Miller for writing in with that. Also, on the November 21st podcast, we talked about cheese and cheese researcher Carol Chen said, Cheddar cheese versus Limburger cheese versus mozzarella versus eusalipia. They all have the same ingredients. Which well, what was the last one? Eusalipia. What's that? It is a Finnish bread cheese. Well, listener Diana Kuzminer wrote in from Helsinki, Finland, where she is a geneticist with the National Health Institute, to say that the cheese, which I tasted and it's really delicious, is actually pronounced eustolepa. And I hope I pronounced Kuzminer right. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com and check out numerous features at the new Siam.com website, including articles from the New Scientific American Body magazine, which looks at the science behind health. That's at siam.com slash siambody. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Mm-hmm.